My friends, no story ever written for the screen is as dramatic as the story of the screen itself. And there was light. This is the fifth episode of the history of film. When last we met, our focus was exclusively on the earliest films of Thomas Alva Edison and W.K.L. Dixon, shot in the first-ever motion picture studio, Edison's Black Maria. We examined films that were either important to or indicative of these movies' place in film history. This week, we shift our focus to Europe, where an experience much more like our modern movie theaters than Edison's kinetoscope parlors would be brought to life. But before we make our transatlantic journey, there's one more Black Maria film that requires our attention within the scope of this podcast. Edison and Dixon's amazing experimental sound film. The Edison-Dixon sound film is exactly what it sounds like. We know from episode 3 that Edison's money-making dream was not to make silent movies, but to have an audiovisual device that would make people's jaws open as wide as their wallets. Putting sound in movies was the initial goal of the engineers who were designing the kinetograph, namely Dixon himself. In 1895, or perhaps even in 1894, which would be even more astonishing, Dixon worked to produce what seemed the inevitable evolution of the kinetograph, the synchronization of sight and sound. The Edison-Dixon sound film is the initial test of that object. The film is clearly a test, with someone casually walking on stage as the actual event being recorded, a violinist and two men dancing, is captured on film. The sound is being recorded analog, without electric microphones to assist in the capture of sound as they would in just a few decades to come. A large horn is being used to funnel sound into a stylus that would record the music of the violin on wax. Before the kinetograph recording begins, you can hear a voice saying, Are the rest of you ready? Go ahead. These, unfortunately, were not the first words spoken on film, as the movie itself begins after the voice recording is heard. The recording sounds like this. This is remarkable, as it is, to my knowledge, the absolute earliest sound film ever made. But it didn't really pan out for Edison or Dixon. We have the luxury of watching this sight and sound film synchronized because of the wonders of modern digital editing and restoration. In the 1890s, synchronizing a wax cylinder and a 50-foot film strip would be ludicrously difficult even for one show, much more so if mechanically queued up for repeated viewings in a parlor setting. Not to mention that both the kinetograph and the phonograph produced physical media that is ludicrously fragile, and wax cylinders have a limited lifetime of repeated plays anyway, far less than the celluloid strips used for kinetoscopes. To top it off, a jam in either of these systems, which was not uncommon as far as I understand, would destroy the synchronization of the two pieces. It was not to be, 
and would not be for just over 30 years when a system called Vitaphone would bring synchronous sound to the wider public in 1926, courtesy of Warner Brothers Studios. When it eventually did, it would sound something like this scene from the marvelous 1952 film, Singing in the Rain. Hello. This is a demonstration of a talking picture. Notice, it is a picture of me, and I am talking. Note how my lips and the sounds issuing from them are synchronized together in perfect unison. I am getting ahead of myself. We won't cover the first talking pictures for about a million episodes. I exaggerate, of course, but it doesn't feel like it. I show you the Edison-Dixon sound film for a few reasons. Number one, it's an important first, even if the innovations that come after it are more impactful, so we needed to talk about it at least a little bit. This is one of my goals for the show, and if I miss anything, and I undoubtedly will, please email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. Second, this is the first time in the podcast that we're able to highlight the importance of film restoration and research in helping us understand film history. Nobody even knew about this movie until the two separate sight and sound components were found in the 1960s, according to Patrick Lowney, in his article on the subject that appears in The Sounds of Early Cinema. Even then, nobody actually saw the thing until the film was restored in 1998, over a hundred years after its original creation. For virtually all of film history, nobody knew about the first sound film in film history. New and relatively new discoveries sit at the heart of film history and studies, and deserve our attention. Finally, this little movie is probably the best example that cinema technology had from its earliest beginnings begun its inexorable march towards synchronous sound. To quote David A. Cook in his book A History of Narrative Film, the idea of making motion pictures was never divorced from the idea of sound. The movies were intended to talk from their very inception, so that in some sense, the silent cinema represents a 30-year aberration from the medium's natural tendency towards a total representation of reality. At this point in our story, movies, in fact, are about to become much better at representing reality, as one important limitation of the kinetoscope is about to be transcended by pioneering filmmakers and engineers. Now that a relatively efficient way of capturing moving pictures had been created back in West Orange, New Jersey, the earliest motion picture enthusiasts began looking for a better way to watch movies. There were several inventors in Europe, that thought they might have the answer. Our old friend, the Magic Lantern. If you remember back in episode 2, you'll remember that the Magic Lantern was a relatively common educational tool in universities in Europe and North America, and no doubt as many places as there were Magic Lanterns, including Japan. It is no wonder that, for many people, the leap from projecting pictures on a wall to projecting motion pictures on a wall seem natural, inevitable, and desirable. The peep show style of the kinetoscope would be made more comfortable and social by being able to sit in an audience and watch a movie in a way similar to already familiar styles of entertainment, like stage performance, diorama theater, and vaudeville that were already being viewed. 
And here, our picture gets a little hazy. In Europe alone, there were already several people developing systems for projecting film at the same time as each other, and others created and iterated on components that would become important for the motion picture projectors in the future. It's hard to nail down who actually invented the first motion picture projector. Ultimately, two brothers with the last name of Lumiere created the projector that had the potent combination of earliness and widespread influence and recognition that's important to understanding history. But they were just the greatest among many, and it is many that we must now discuss. The first of these was the French inventor Louis Le Prince, born in Metz, France, in 1842. No doubt a genius, Louis moved to England and then to New York in the United States when he began to develop a motion picture camera and projector. He succeeded, actually, and received patents for his device by 1890, and even used celluloid film to record and project his images. But he also disappeared mysteriously on a train, never to be seen again, before he made a public demonstration of his films. Seriously, he was visiting his brother, got on a train, and never got off. There are all kinds of theories about what happened to him, but nobody knows for sure. And it's doubtful they ever will. 130 years makes a case quite cold. The reason Le Prince hasn't come up until now is because his camera and projector, while amazing, are not directly on the evolutionary chain that has led to movies released in 2020 and beyond. Another inventor, William Fries Green, born in Bristol, England in 1855, invented a camera and projection machine in 1887, and he would later develop stereoscopic 3D projections and early color film technologies. Unfortunately, there's no record of a public display of his device, and it so too failed to make a revolutionary splash. American inventor Jean-Ami Leroy, or Jean-Ami Leroy if that's how you say his name, also claimed to have invented a motion picture projector in 1893, and adapted it to project two Edison kinetoscope films in 1894 after seeing them exhibited in a parlor. If this is true, the first projective films may have been to an audience of about 25 at the Riley Brothers Optical Shop in New York City. According to the amazingly useful website Who's Who of Victorian Cinema, these two films were The Execution of Mary Queen of Scots and Washing the Baby, and there's still a playbill for the event. The only issue is that those two films were filmed after 1894, so it would be impossible to project. This has led to some question about Leroy's account of the story, at least in the particulars. In addition, Jean-Amie Leroy may also have gone missing in 1937, I'm not sure. It's very difficult to find out about this man. The point is that while any and all of these people here outlined may have invented motion picture projection first, none of their inventions really stuck. On the great evolutionary chain of movies, the baton of momentous motion picture innovation was passed from the Dixon-Edison partnership in the United States to two French brothers with the auspicious name Lumiere, meaning light. Our attention now turns to Auguste and Louis Lumiere, who were born in Biscon, France in 1862 and 1864 respectively. 
Their father, Charles-Antoine Lumière, had established a business as a portrait photographer before moving to Lyon, France in 1870, where he began a business creating photographic plates that were in demand at the time. Charles-Antoine didn't find much success in his enterprise, though, until his sons, Louis and Auguste, developed devices necessary to mechanize the production of the plates, and even a better photographic plate at the same time. The twin engines of industrial mechanization and a hit product increased the family's fortune, and spoke of the ingenuity of the two brothers. The family was able to create a prosperous factory, which would eventually employ many, many workers. The Lumiere family found their situation greatly improved. In the autumn of 1894, Charles-Antoine Lumiere visited an exhibition of the Edison Kinetoscope, and left disappointed. Charles was dismayed by the price of viewing the shows and the peep-show nature of the entertainment. After the show, Charles Antoine went to his son Louis and asked him to see what he could do about engineering a solution to these problems. What Louis would come up with would change the world. Louis Lumiere created what he called the cinématographie, which is still what we call the practice of recording movies to this day. I will use the English pronunciation to refer to it, the cinematography. The cinematography was a portable two-in-one machine that both recorded images onto film and projected them. It was hand-craked rather than the electrically powered Edison cameras and was intended to be ran at 16 frames per second. It solved two of the major issues that the Edison-Dixon kinetograph struggled with. It was light enough to be moved around and record subjects in various locations, making more kinds of movies and broader subjects possible. And it could project film for a whole audience at once to see, in comfortable chairs even. Once it was made, Louis Lumiere knew the device would be a big hit, and prepared a backstock of cinematography machines for the inevitable demand that would surely come. While it was Louis Lumiere who invented the cinematography, not Auguste, he admitted as much himself, saying, My brother invented the cinema one night, a claim that simultaneously impresses the importance of the invention of the cinematography and gives credit to Louis, the brothers worked together to distribute and create their movies. This is why history remembers the Lumiere brothers as the founding fathers of cinema, rather than Louis as the single founding father. Armed with the cinematography, the Lumiere brothers began presenting their short movies to private audiences beginning in March 1895, but their world-changing premiere was on 28 December 1895. They rented the basement of the Grand Café in Paris, on the Boulevard des Champs-Posay. This was the first commercial space rented for film projection. The Lumiere showed 10 movies that night, with a program that ran about 20 minutes in length. We'll talk about many of those movies and their effect on film history next week. Workers leaving the Lumiere factory, demolition of a wall, and feeding a baby. Very soon, other famous movies, including Waterer and the Watered, and the absolutely astonishing Train Arrives at the Station of Le Gras would follow. These last were not in the very first show, but were early enough that you may have heard them as being so. According to legend, when the train arrived at the station was first shown, the enormous projected train coming towards the camera frightened the audience, who had never experienced the cinema before. The event is recounted here in the 2011 film Hugo. In 1895, one of the very first films ever shown 
was called a train arrives in the station, which had nothing more than a train coming into the station. When the train came speeding toward the screen, the audience screamed because they thought they were in danger of being run over. No one had ever seen anything like it before. No one had ever seen anything like it before. While the idea of people jumping from their seats when the train came in is lovely, it's almost certainly not true. It is possible there is some apprehension, in the same way that people unaccustomed to VR simulations might feel apprehension at the unusual experience, but in 1895, many of the people in the audience would have been experienced with magic lantern projections before. The train arrives at the station in Le Gras is particularly important to film history for several reasons, so much so that I used it as the image for this podcast, but that's for next week. The Lumiere brothers charged one franc for admission to their show. On their opening night, they brought in only 35 francs, but word spread, and in a month, the Lumiere shows were making about 7,000 francs per week. Projected film was a huge hit, and would only grow from there. The press was largely absent from this first presentation, as nobody foresaw the impact that motion picture projection would have. Only two newspapers covered the events of 28 December 1895, and one of those reporters for a paper called Le Post wrote this, With this new innovation, death will no longer be absolute, final. The people we have seen on the screen will be with us, moving in alive after death. It seems that for some people, the romance of the screen had already taken them, and perhaps the usefulness of film as a historian's tool, and home movies as a way of remembering people and events that otherwise might be hard to grasp. The Lumiere projected films represent, according to David A. Cook, the end of the technological experimentation phase of film history, beginning with Muybridge's motion studies all the way back in 1872. From here on out, movies would no longer be primarily made by scientists and engineers trying to make a device that would create a moving picture effect, but instead be innovated upon by filmmakers, entertainers, and businessmen who sought to use already existing technologies to make art and profit through entertaining audiences. True, movies then, just as now, continue to technologically innovate the equipment and processes used to make movies. But from here on, movies are a real force in the entertainment industry, not something cooked up in labs. Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of The History of Film. If you would like to contact me, you can email me at historyoffilmpodcast at gmail.com. The show's website is historyoffilmpodcast.com, which you can visit to see helpful resources in understanding each episode of the show, listen to the podcast, and even watch movies. We will see you in two weeks' time for another exciting episode of The History of Film. <laughs>